Our scripture this morning is um, once again taken from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 12. So if you will turn to your um, electronic Bibles or your analog Bibles, <laughs> uh, to Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 12. As I introduce this, let me say that um, the one who speaks is Christ in this prophecy. So it's Jesus Christ prophetically speaking through Isaiah the prophet with these words. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all of my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar and behold, these from the north and from the west and these from the land of Cyrene. Let's pray. Father, give us such sufficient measure of your Holy Spirit this morning that we can comprehend what Christ has said to the prophet Isaiah and how these words would speak to us. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the sure and certain testimony we have to your great salvation which you've sent into this world in your Son. May we hear, may it bring comfort to us, may it work in us all things that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I want to begin uh, 
this morning by pointing something out, and that is uh, I'm going to mention The Atlantic, which is a highbrow kind of news magazine or ideas kind of magazine, and The New York Times, which all highbrow people think is the newspaper that they ought to read. Because I'm mentioning those two in my, the beginning of my sermon this morning, I don't want you to think that I commonly read the New York Times or that I regularly read the Atlantic. Just providentially, those things came to me this week. Uh, and one was an article about Tim Keller, and the other was a, 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 an article written by an Anglican priest. So I just want to mention that so you don't think something more of me than you ought to be thinking. Providentially, these things came to my attention this morning. Uh, the first, though, was an interview uh, of Tim Keller, a pastor Tim Keller, that um, the elite of the nation, meaning the people in New York City, <laughs> think that Tim Keller is the most important pastor in all of America. He's regularly described this way. Now, I will say that Tim Keller has had a tremendous amount of influence in our country and in our culture. There's no question about that. When he writes something, even non-Christians listen. And, and that's why this author is writing this article in The Atlantic about Tim Keller, about his views of the moral universe, about the existence of God and the existence of evil. So this is what Peter uh, Wainer has to say in this interview. He says... Um, about the existence of God, Keller has said that if you believe in God, evil, and suffering, then you're facing a great problem. But quoting Keller, Keller says, but if you don't believe in God, it's an even bigger one. Keller reasons this way. To believe in evil requires belief in a moral absolute grounded in some transcendent truth. If that doesn't exist, then how do you even define evil? Keller goes on to say, if there is no God, then evil and suffering and violence are perfectly natural. Quote, the weak are killed off, the stronger survive, that's the way the world is. There is no right and wrong, there is just what is. To believe that some things that happen are evil requires some supernatural standard of good, something from outside of nature by which to judge which natural things are truly natural and which things are unnatural. But as Nietzsche says, there's nothing outside of nature. Then the writer goes on to note, this theological argument doesn't explain why God allows evil and suffering it only claims that you can't use evil and suffering to disprove the existence of God. Keller points out, that's all we can do. That's it. And that's not much. It's the cross that helps us actually live this life. And that's what, that is what matters. In other words... It's the mission of Christ in this world that addresses the issue of evil, the evil that we see in this world. And apart from Christ and apart from his mission, we have no real help and we have no real ability to 
address the evil that we see and the evil that we experience, most particularly the evil that exists within our own lives. The Advent season. It's a focus on the biblical story of God's Son. It's a focus upon Christ. It's a focus upon his mission coming into this world, but it has no meaning and it has no significance unless we first consider the deep and awful reason for why God sent Jesus in the first place. We live in a world of great darkness. Human beings perpetrate evil against one another. The darkness inside human hearts spread from one human being to another, even from one generation to the next. Now, just this, just this week, um, my wife and I had a visit from a dear friend, uh, and she was sharing some of the struggles that are going on within her larger extended family. Her sister's grandson is about three or four years old. The mother is a substance abuser. The dad has been incarcerated. Our friend has custody of this little boy. She's had custody for a good part of his young life. We know this little boy because he's been in our house on a number of occasions. This week she told us more of the mother's attitude toward her son. She described her as being detached, emotionally detached as a mother. So recently when the mother came to visit and the little boy was craving his mother's attention, our friend told us, the mom said to her son, quit bothering me. It struck me. If this little boy gets the message that he doesn't matter to his mother, he'll have a hard time believing that he really matters at all. If the most basic fabric of what it means to be a human being, parent to child, child to parent, is ruptured in this way, if it's lost to this kind of darkness, how will this, ever, this child ever grow up to believe that his life is worth anything at all? There's no question that the terrorist shooting at the Naval Air Station in Pensacola this week was a tragic evil. There's no question that in the jewelry robbery that went down with, with the UPS driver being a hostage and an innocent bystander getting killed, there's no question those are tragically evil events inaugurated and perpetrated by evil human beings. But I want you to think about this. Are we blind when we do not see that the seeds of evil can be sown when a mother treats her child if he does not matter? How the darkness inside of her may so easily foster a deeper darkness growing inside of him. I bring these things to our attention because unless we consider the darkness in this world, 
and face it up close and personal, we can have no true understanding or appreciation for what Christ came to do. Advent. God sending his son into this world. God sending his son as light to address the darkness. Now, that's one of the themes that we find in the book of Isaiah. We said last week that there is so much of the gospel predicted in the book of Isaiah, so much of Christ to come, so much of the the, the messianic era that scholars call the book of Isaiah the the gospel prophet. Uh, Again and again we see Christ being proclaimed, Christ being predicted. And this, this theme of light and darkness, therefore, is one of the themes that we find in the book of Isaiah. For instance, Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Isaiah 42, which we looked at last week, verse 7. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 50. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light Trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Isaiah 59, verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. But the very next chapter breaks open in this way. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Behold, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. And the same theme of light and darkness shows up in our passage that we read this morning. The second servant song in the book of Isaiah. Now, here's the main idea. Here's the main point. The whole meaning of Christmas can be looked at this way. Christ is the light coming into this world who overcomes the darkness of the human heart. Jesus has come into this world to shed light upon all of the dark places of the human existence, a light that shines forth in granting true light and everlasting life. All of salvation summed up in the idea delivered from darkness, translated into the light that Christ brings and gives. Now, in the passage that we have read, three things. We're going to look at two of them very, very briefly so we can focus upon the third. So in Isaiah 49, you have once again the servant of the Lord being called and the servant of the Lord's mission and commission, first of all, being 
defined. And we find this in the first four verses. What is the ultimate purpose for why the Lord sends Christ into this world? Ultimate purpose. We find it in verse 3. God calls Christ, as Christ himself says, in order to be glorified in him. God is going to be glorified in the mission of Christ. And then we see some, some words there that explain why this is so significant. Also in verse 3, God calls Christ Israel. Why? Why call him Israel? Because Christ, as the Son of God, is going to be the true Israel who doesn't fail the way the nation Israel failed. Again and again, we find the history of repeated failure by Israel. Do they worship God? No. They fell away. They rejected the true God and worshipped those things which were no gods at all. They worshipped idols. Again and again, God had to address his covenant people as those who were covenant breakers, who were consistently rejecting him, rejecting his role in their lives and his rule over them to pursue the things of this world that aren't truly God at all. But when Christ comes, he will be everything that Israel was supposed to be, and he will do everything that Israel was supposed to do, and so much more. The true son will bring to God all of his glory. Now, that's why the angels proclaim on the night that Jesus is born, glory to God in the highest. Because they knew and they understood that the birth of Christ in the world had as its highest purpose the bringing of God all of his glory. So that's the first theme. Now, I will just say this. The glory of God as the highest purpose of God in no way compromises, in no way mitigates, in no way somehow makes a distant second what God intends to do through Christ for the salvation of men. Because in the salvation that God brings about in Christ, even that itself, the work of Christ, brings its greatest glory to God. Or in other words, we say this. God's glory is your greatest good. Christians, we need to understand this. That the Bible tells us that when God most greatly exalts and glorifies himself, he does so in such a way that this is to our own greatest good because wrapped in God bringing himself the greatest of glory is the salvation of wretched, broken, sinful human beings. God doesn't ultimately separate the two in Scripture. He brings himself the greatest glory by the demonstration of his grace in the salvation of those who so desperately need him. The second theme then. The second theme is about how this mission of Christ is going to correspond to that ancient promise that God gave to Abraham that in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Genesis 12.3, Genesis 22.18 that the full extent of the work of Christ is going to be exactly that which God promised to Abraham. Abraham, in your seed, 
which the New Testament tells us in Galatians 3, verse 8, verse 16. In your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, that seed being Christ. So we look at these verses, verses 5 and 6, and we see here that, first of all, the commission and mission of Christ was, in fact, to the Jews themselves. Christ says in the middle of verse 5, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. And then in verse 6, it is too light a thing that you should bring my servant, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So clearly the calling of Christ is to the Jewish nation first, uh, to bring redemption to those who are preserved within Israel that God is going to bless by salvation. But then we go on to the second part of verse 6. The mission of Christ then is much larger. So God says to Christ, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God's intention. When he first gave his promise to Abraham that the way in which he was going to bless the world would bless the world not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Abraham's name was changed from Abram, revered father, to Abraham, the father of nations. It has always been God's plan to bring his redemption to all the world. Now, that was understood by the godly Jews of Jesus' day. There are many who had a messianic idea that uh, the Messiah was going to come and exalt the nation of Israel. The Messiah was going to come and throw off the Roman Empire. The Messiah was going to come and reestablish Israel in a political entity as great as it ever was with David and Solomon. In fact, even greater. Uh, that was their idea. But the godly Jews at the time of the birth of Christ understood that what God was going to do in Christ coming into the world was not for some political deliverance. It was for salvation. It was for salvation from sin. On the day that Jesus uh, was taken to the temple, um, sometime after he was born, Mary and Joseph are there. And the man Simeon comes up to them. Because the man Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the consolation of Israel. And so we read about this, Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 25, that Mary and Joseph present the baby at the temple. Joseph takes the baby into his hands. He blesses God and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So Christ brought into this world for all the nations. And yet you also notice in the passage in Isaiah that we're looking at this morning, that Christ is going to be opposed in the midst of all of this. Verse 7, we read that kings shall rise, excuse me, <clears throat> earlier. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. 
We've seen this theme as we study the theology of David. Christ coming into this world to accomplish the great purposes of salvation. But Christ is going to be opposed. Christ is going to be despised. Christ is going to be rejected. And the first part of verse 7 speaks of that. But the second part speaks to what happens after Christ is abhorred, after he's despised, after he's rejected. So verse 7 continues, Kings shall see and arise princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. There's going to be a reversal in the ministry and life of Christ where abhorred, despised, rejected, he will then find his mission, his person, ultimately accepted, so that even kings and princes will bow down and prostrate and worship before him. Now, in verse 7, there's a kind of figure of speech apart for the whole. When it points out that kings and princes are going to be those who will worship God, the part for the whole is this. The leaders of the nation also represent the members of the nation. The part for the whole is that incorporated with respect to the great ones are the lesser ones. The rulers the citizens. So when we are told that the kings and the princes shall recognize Christ and that they too shall worship him, it's inclusive then of the nations. Another way of saying the Abrahamic covenant shall be fulfilled. Christ shall become a blessing to all the nations. The great ones and the small ones will find in Christ the blessing that they need. Moving on then to the third and what I think to be the most significant theme for us this season. Verses 8 to 12. In the saving nature of Christ's mission, he comes as light to deliver us out of darkness. Now, consider the language of light and darkness. It's metaphorical. Their words are opposites. The light and darkness represent good, evil, right and wrong, the real and the false, the truth and the lie. What helps, what hurts, what creates, what destroys, what gives true life and the death that takes away true life. Light and darkness mean all of this. So in these verses, verses 8 through 12, God uses the language uh, familiar to God's people, the language of the promised land and restoration to the promised land to describe what the light of Christ is going to do when he brings salvation to all of God's people. So God, through Christ, in verse 9, says to the prisoners, Come out, and to those in darkness, appear. He is the light that God sends as a covenant to the people, so that the captives will hear the voice of Christ saying to them, Come out. Those dwelling in darkness will hear the voice of Christ saying, Appear, 
you're free. The realm of darkness holds its prisoners captive. Castaways. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They're afflicted. They're lost. But Christ, as God's sharp sword, Christ, as God's polished arrow, will in fact set the captives free, bringing them light out of darkness, bringing them the salvation that he has come to bring. In other words, the message is this. Christ will conquer dark hearts so that even the great ones and the small ones will come to worship him. He shall be the light to all the world, even to the ends of the earth. Now, this idea, this theme, sketching what's going on in verses 8 through 12 very, very quickly here, becomes in our Christmas carols and hymns a dominant theme. It is a dominant theme within the New Testament. For instance, in terms of our hymns, hymn 193, let all mortal flesh keep silence. Verse 3 says this, Rank on rank the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way as the light of light descendeth from the realms of endless day that the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. Christ coming as the light to vanquish the darkness in our lives. O little town of Bethlehem, verse 2, or verse 1. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by, yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Many more of our hymns trace out this dual theme of light and darkness. John's Gospel. It's prominent in John's Gospel. Just a few references. John chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then it speaks of John the Baptist coming into the world to bear witness to the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And then in John chapter 3, 19 to 21, John writes, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John 8:12. Again, Jesus spoke to them. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We see this often then again in the rest of the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Or 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, wrap up this way. The cross of the Lord Jesus. It's by virtue of the cross of Christ that the light has come into the world. I think about our friend and her description of his mother, and it causes me to think of this. A mother so detached, a mother who finds her son bothersome, a mother who's sometimes responsible, but most of the time not. And I thought, how different it would be if this young mother were filled with light instead of darkness. In the darkness, she matters only to herself. How different for her and for her son if her heart were to be focused on the light of Christ. How different it would be if only she embraced her need for the Savior who would save her from the darkness of her own sins, who would give to her the light of life that she might be able to raise her son in this way. The message of light and darkness continues into 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, which is a wonderful introduction to the Lord's table this morning. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness, and we lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the message of the season. Amen. Father, help us, we pray. Help us to see in Jesus what we need. Help us to be honest enough to admit the darkness that is in our own lives. But help us to know that the all-sufficiency of Christ is his light, which the darkness can never overcome. But rather, it is Jesus who vanquishes the powers of darkness away in his great work upon the cross. O oh Lord, bless us now as we come to the table to be reminded of all that Christ has done for us. In his name we pray. Amen.